Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Roger Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Sean, are the alarm bells going off? It is the 15th of December. You have 10 days to shop for a two-year-old and a, what is he? Is your first one even a year yet? These are very important Christmases. (laughs) You're embedding lifetime memories here, okay? You are under a lot of stress and pressure to deliver big time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for reminding me. We're loading up a car tomorrow morning, uh, Saturday, December 16th, and driving from New York City to Lorignal, Ontario, just outside of Ottawa. We'll be spending the next couple of weeks um, hoping to send the kids over to Grandma and Grandpa's farm for a bit and, <laughs> and manage to get some of that last minute Christmas shopping done. How, how about you? What are things looking like over at your household? Yeah, we uh, are going to be here in Toronto. We had a um, little family kind of hiccup that uh, necessitates being kind of around for the holidays. Um no snow here. It's 11 degrees. Uh, El Nino is conspiring. My kids are complaining about the absence of a night white Christmas. So I may have to like go buy a giant bag of, you know, styrofoam <laughs> pellets and kind of throw them around the living room on, on Christmas Eve to kind of simulate <laughs> something remotely wintry uh, for the day in question. But let's see, we still got a l- little more time. Let's also talk about as the year comes to a close, uh, Sean, some interesting numbers that suggest that there could indeed be a pulse, a heartbeat uh, somewhere within the political corpus of the Liberal Party of Canada. Some new polling showing a turn here. It could be a trend, we don't know yet, of support away from Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. What do you think's going on? I've got some ideas, but uh, I want to hear your thesis first. Yeah, I think principally two explanations in my mind. The first is this is one, it's just reverting to something resembling a kind of normal equilibrium that the run that the Conservatives have been on for the past several months was probably always going to be unsustainable. Um, and so what you're seeing is 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 merely a kind of reversion to the mean that still gives the conservatives a, a pretty considerable lead, um, but um, but puts the liberals, you know, something more closely resembling striking distance than than has been the case uh, really since uh, the, since the spring. The second explanation, though, which is ought to be a, a, perhaps a greater concern for the conservatives, is I think after having run a, a, a pretty well disciplined opposition. Really, since Pierre Polyev became leader about a year ago, there have been some instances of of indiscipline. Uh, we've seen, for instance, uh, uh, the the party find itself on its back feet with respect to a couple of of key votes in Parliament on support for Ukraine. Um, you know, the reason that represents such a threat to the Conservatives is not necessarily the issue in and of itself, although we can talk a bit about that. Um, but because the, what the Liberals want to do, of course, is characterize the Conservatives as of the same ilk as um, as Republican voices in the United States, namely Donald Trump. And so the extent to which the conservatives look wobbly on Ukraine, it reinforces, I think, what will be the, the key uh, critique or, or attack on, on the conservatives by the liberals. And so um, that's a long way of saying, I guess, part of it, I think, is just the normal course of politics. But part of it is, I think, the, the conservatives becoming a bit indisciplined and a need to as they enter 2024 to restore the discipline that really was at the core of the success that they've had 
in 2023. Yeah, let's talk about the Ukraine thing a bit more because it is interesting to think about like where this has come from and why now. But before we do that, let me just throw another theory out there that might just be of kind of intellectual curiosity and interest to the audience and I want your reaction to it. I think if you tracked, if you had a graph and you looked at Pierre Polyev's popularity and the prime minister's unpopularity, and then you looked at bond yields over the last year, that the prime minister's relationship to those yields would be inverse and Polyev's would track. And the reason I mention this is that unless you've been living in, a, you know, in a, one of Sant the Santa Elf shops busily making presents for kids, you would have seen that over the last eight weeks, bond yields uh, really across developed economies have um, crashed. And this week, that crash accelerated with a surprise statement by Chairman Jerome Powell that the Federal Reserve it's bizarre in the face of 4% core inflation and 5% GDP growth in the last quarter, the chair decided in his press conference this week uh, around the, uh, the rate setting uh, by the world's largest central bank to muse about the possibility of cuts to uh, the overnight rate in 2024 and that the anticipation of the market from those words was that those cuts could be sooner and more significant than anyone thought even a matter of a few weeks ago. The reason I mention all this is, you know, on our, on a previous episode, we talked about just how low consumer confidence was in Canada. And it's because we have one of the most heavily indebted economies in the world and because people are so sensitive to interest rates and borrowing costs. So I, I would really caution conservatives to, keep a close eye on let's say the five-year you know bond in canada which sets all of our mortgages are priced off that it's collapsed back to the february january 2023 levels it's erased over a hundred basis points in the last eight weeks this i think sean explains why canadians may be feeling better and this could be a trend that is a friend to this prime minister going into 2024, if the US Federal Reserve indeed is worried about its own election year and worried about uh, the, the orange monster <laughs> lurking in the corner down there who seems to be pulling ahead of President Biden. Now, I know this may all sound like three-dimensional chess, but I do not underestimate the extent to which our moods in this country at any one moment correlate to the immediate costs of servicing our debt. I think it could be that simple. No, I think that's really smart. Uh, Jerome Powell is Justin Trudeau's Santa Claus giving him this, <laughs> yeah. this great gift. No, I, I think there's really something to that. Um, and it it is a reminder, of course, um, that the election is still a couple of years away, all things being equal. And well, the conservatives have ridden the affordability issue broadly defined uh, to um, this during this period of su sustained success, it's it's not axiomatic that the next election is necessarily going to be fought on on uh, affordability issues. It depends, of course, on all, a host of factors, including, as you say, whether we start to see interest rates come down. So 
I, I think the takeaway for me, and, and I think maybe it is a good segue into the Ukraine issue, Rajud, is the conservatives need to continue to advance the case on, on these issues where they've had uh, real strength, but they need to start to build out a, a, a fuller, more comprehensive uh, uh, governing agenda. And, you know, what's striking about these couple of votes on, on Ukraine, and we can kind of get into the specifics about them if you want. But what strikes me as I was thinking about it in advance of today's conversation is I actually don't know what Pierre Polyev thinks on about the Ukraine issue. I don't really know what Paul P. Pierre Polyev thinks about really any uh, geopolitical matter before us right now. He, you know, he's a, he has a kind of libertarian view about economics, which inclines me to think that all things being equal, he's kind of a free trader and, you know, pro-globalization and all the rest. Um, but I don't really know that. I, I don't know if he uh, would subscribe to the view that we've seen play out in Washington in conservative circles, that we need to take a much uh, more hawkish line on China. On all of these fronts, uh, we don't really know. And so when the party takes these votes on, on Ukraine, in the absence of that kind of framework, without really understanding what's motivating them, then it the criticism that this is merely kind of following the politics that we've seen in certain conservative circles in the United States uh, is persuasive because there's no other explanation before us. And so I guess that's a long way of saying in a world in which you can't necessarily assume that the next election is going to be fought on a particular issue, you really do need to start articulating a, a, a broader agenda as a kind of hedge against uh, any number of issues which ultimately could, um, could shape the election outcome. Yeah, and I think the strange thing about you know, again, kind of the squabbling over Ukraine. I mean, some of this is a bit esoteric, you know, this enhanced kind of free trade agreement or um, between Canada and Ukraine. It has a lot of really kind of weird stuff that the liberals love to push into these types of agreements on gender and trans and other, other aspects. And that's fine. They're the government. They're entitled to do that. But to kind of pick a fight on, you know, the fact that, Ukraine has a kind of a, a climate policy and there's carbon taxes involved. It, it just, yeah, it just strikes me as, you know, a thousand and one problems facing Canada. Um, and frankly, a thousand and one problems facing Ukraine, that's probably like a thousand and two. Um, and then to go further and I don't know, um, kind of communicate around that this kind of slightly Trumpy vibe of like skepticism about Zelensky and an implied kind of skepticism about the war effort. Um, it just, it plays into what exactly we know that the liberals will do. And I, I think their plan is to run against Trump. Um, I think in an in, a, in an interesting way, while Jerome Powell may have delivered Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau a Christmas present in the form of, you know, plunging borrowing costs, that that is all because the big angry orange monster is out polling Biden across, you know, a whole series of, you know, critical demographics, key battleground states, um, you know, establishment America and arguably, you know, progressive liberal elite opinion uh, is truly and utterly horrified by this prospect. And I think the conservatives need to just be very careful about giving the liberals any kind of chink in their armor that allows them to 
legitimately kind of call out a kind of MAGA vibe on the part of the conservatives, because I think Trump in an interesting way could really end up kind of being Pierre Polyev's political nemesis, at least to the extent to which the liberals will try to try to turn that into the, the narrative, the ballot question. Um, Donald Trump may well be the president in, of the United States. Who do you want? Who's capable of defending Canada's interests? Yeah, ex- ex- precisely right. Um, I'll just make a, cu- a couple of quick comments along the, uh, in, in response to what you said. The first is, I could, you could rationalize some of the votes we've seen in Parliament. The, the vote on the estimates, for instance, uh, you know, there wasn't an opportunity for the Conservatives to vote on individual lied items. Um, you know, in which they could have voted for the, the financial resources for Ukraine, but against the totality of the government spending plan. You mentioned some of the peculiarities in the, the free trade agreement. So in, in and of themselves, they're probably defensible. Um, but when his back was against the wall in the House of Commons, he referred to Ukraine as a faraway foreign land, which does um, connote some of the language you hear from Tucker Carlson or J.D. Vance or other uh, other voice conservative voices in the United States. Um, and so I think, yeah especially in the absence of a clearer view on Canada's position vis-a-vis Ukraine, um, you're, it, it creates this opportunity for the conserv- for the liberals rather to, to make these arguments. And I would just say in parentheses, you know, I think at the hub, we'd be pretty open to a debate about the right Canadian policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. And, uh, you know, from the beginning, Rudyard, I think you've been a bit apprehensive about the kind of sable rattling in a lot of circles and and kind of calling for a, a bit of realism in terms of how the U.S. and Canada and others are, are thinking about these issues. So there's there's plenty of room for Pierre Polyev to scope out uh, uh, lines of argument al- along those lines. But in the absence of those, as you say, he's sort of left exposed, looking like he's kind of nodding to um uh, some of these sentiments in U.S. conservative circles, and that hands the liberals a line of attack that they're clearly in search of. Yeah, and then, you know, the relentless combativeness towards, you know, journalists. It's just, now again, everyone has their temperament, everyone has their hot-button issues, and he should be allowed to have his too. But it's just thinking through how those pieces, how your opponents can connect those those pieces for an electorate, in Canada that will be obsessed about American politics between now and next November. This time next year, we will know whether Donald Trump is going to give the inauguration address on January 4, 2025. Like, this is crazy how fast this is all going to happen. We are into the primaries, key primaries, Iowa, New Hampshire, in a matter of, you know, six to eight weeks. So this is going to become the number one kind of media and political issue, I think, in debate in the in the new year. And it is going to burn all year long, all through 2024. Um, And the conservatives need to kind of calibrate for that. And again, against a backdrop, I think of, you know, I say this with some chagrin, because I had predicted higher bond yields in a in a in a hub piece uh, for longer. Um, And now it seems you know, in a very, I think, political way, the U.S. Federal Reserve has made a decision that courting the risk of a recession in 2024, maybe fairly or not being blamed for electing Trump as a result of that is a greater threat to the Fed's credibility than not dealing with inflation that's at 4% core, you know, double what arguably their their target is. Uh, 
So I, I think, you know, the headwinds are coming and the conservatives have got to start thinking about these now to try to get out ahead of them, to develop the strategies, to pick up another argument that's maybe a nuanced or different version of affordability because housing prices could rebound in the spring. People's mortgage renewals could come in at terms that seem a lot more favorable to them than what they're thinking now. And Trump will be out there as this, you know, meta crisis, this poly crisis that will obsess the, you know, Canadian political establishment. Yeah, if I could just say one person that Pierre Polyev might want to emulate or model, this is going to sound a bit counterintuitive to listeners, is Justin Trudeau himself. Um, in 2014 and into 2015, uh, then a third party opposition leader, Justin Trudeau, starts to deliver a series of speeches that him and his team communicate to the media and the public are fundamental, that, that these uh, speeches represent um, not just a set of policy commitments, but a kind of window into how Justin Trudeau would govern as prime minister. He gives a speech in Calgary on energy and, and climate. He gives a speech uh, uh, in Toronto on um, on liberalism and uh, and the charter and Canadian citizenship and pluralism and all the rest. He gives a speech on Canadian foreign policy, uh, including Canada's place in, in North America. And I think I don't want to overstate things, but I think in hindsight, those speeches help Trudeau kind of get over a threshold challenge he faced, which was, is he serious? Is this guy capable of, of being prime minister? And I think those speeches played some role in establishing that idea in the mind of Canadians and ultimately, of course, helped contribute to his, his win in 2015. And so if I was Pierre Polyev, yes, he's a terrific performer in parliament. He's terrific on social media. He clearly has a set of of issues that have been really successful for him with respect to affordability and housing and 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 so on. But if if I were advising him, I think I would start not overexposing myself, but in certain instances, um, letting people in on a, a broader vision for Canada's place in the world, uh, uh, how to grow the economy, etc. Start to put a bit of meat on the bone. Um, to get people socialized to the idea of a, of a Prime Minister Polyev and to hedge again again against uh, the extent to which the issue set that has been so successful for him in 2023 starts to change. Terrific. Uh, let's take a break. Then we're going to come back and try to do the impossible. Two guys are going to try to talk about period products and the public policy of supporting, subsidizing women's menstruation. That's going to be really interesting, Sean. Let's see if we can pull this off. Back right after the break. The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of the Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill Hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftie to Hub Forum, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the giftie to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift of the Hub this holiday season. 
Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. That was our pitch for Hub Gift Membership. So you can give one this holiday season. It's a fantastic gift. You get a charitable tax receipt and your giftee gets a Hub hat, all kinds of other great benefits. So please support the Hub this holiday season. Again, you can do that on our website, www.thehub.ca. Now, Sean, we uh, debated this next topic that we're going to discuss because there's so many ways to do this really badly and get into a whole bunch of trouble, which is, you know, two guys of a certain age talking about women's period products. But I want to do it because I think it's, it's kind of an interesting, like cultural moment. And then it's interesting to see how these different political parties are using um, this issue of, of, at least in the context of federal offices and buildings, providing um, period products in both women's and men's washrooms uh, free of charge to employees and members of parliament and others. And it's become a bit of a, a kind of Twitter storm over the last week. And it could be, you could just easily write this off as a proverbial, you know, tempest in a teapot. But I think there's something going on here about how we think and discuss and debate these types of issues and why they take on this traction, why they consume so much oxygen. What's your sense of why we're fascinated by this, why we can't resist talking about this uh, right now, right here on the Hub Roundtable? Part of the reason is that it seems to me, Roger, that both sides of the political divide think that these issues tilt in their favor. And, And the proof of that is we had representatives from the, the, the two major political parties, the liberals and the conservatives, both making hay about the fact that there are now these products available for free in men's men's washrooms on Parliament Hill. The conservatives um, highlighted it as an example of, on one hand, kind of frivolousness on the part of the government, but I think more fundamentally about the extent to which it represents a kind of ideological set of assumptions about identity and so on that that is really at the heart of of what makes a lot of contemporary progressivism tick. On the other hand, of course, um, representatives from the, the government were quick to seize on on this and and to essentially try to, again, characterize the conservatives as being insensitive to the needs and interests of sexual minorities and, you know, essentially wanting to move backwards on the the march for rights uh, for sexual minorities. So, you know, it's on. Uh, on one hand, I'd say both sides can't be right, that ultimately, uh, you know, the nature of wedge issues is that one has to be right and one has to be wrong. But that may not be right, um, that if really what they're aiming to do is not reach, you know, kind of ordinary voters, but to galvanize their own voters, then it's quite possible that on an issue like this, both sides can be right, if that if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And maybe that explains the, the kind of airtime that this gets um yeah i would take it a slightly different direction what fascinates me about liberalism as an ideology is, and in some ways it's 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 ennobling that it historically has this this relentless desire to kind of push um the perceived boundaries of um you know societal convention and understanding um and liberalism has done this in wonderful ways. The abolition of slavery, you know, the big movements of the 18th and 19th century 
that ended the institution of slavery. Liberalism was at the forefront of the emancipation of women, bringing the vote to women. We have to acknowledge that that was a liberal movement. The civil rights movement in the United States and around the world, again, inspired by liberal ideas and this relentless uh, uh, notion of expanding the scope of, of human freedom, individual autonomy and choice. And now we arrive because an aspect of this debate is about these period project products being in men's washrooms to facilitate the use uh, in those places by by trans people who who would want to have an access to a period product uh, for their their personal use. So again, it's this it's this pushing now of of transgendered persons and their rights as the new kind of frontier of freedom to animate and fuel and feed the liberal project, the liberal idea. And the irony is that, you know, conservatives historically are on the precisely and philosophically on the other side. They're about the value of conserving an existing order of understanding, you know, the extent to which as human beings, we we flourish at times and need uh, common points of, of reference and uh, common identities, uh, symbols, ideas, beliefs that that unite us uh, in an appreciation of you know the conservative view of a, a good life that has aspects of human liberty, but it's not the totality. It's not the thrust. It's not the direction of conservative ideology. So I bring this all back to saying, you know, this this debate is fascinating in terms of how it reveals to me the power and the relentlessness of liberalism to expand the scope of human freedom. And and I guess I just end up with an ambivalence as to where and when does this go too far too fast? Um, what does this lead to in a society in terms of polarization and alienation and division? I don't know, Sean, I'm getting very philosophical here about, you know, period products, but, <laughs> but it does just fascinate me how liberalism cannot leave these itches unscratched. Yeah. And, and I would say, just to emphasize that point that often the things that seem, um, implausible become plausible, right? Like if you would have said, you know, five years ago that that not only would a period products in men's washrooms on Parliament Hill um, um, come to manifest, but that it would be the source of a, a major political debate, people would have said, well, no, that doesn't make much sense. I can't envision a scenario like that. But as you say, the kind of inherent logic of liberalism marches on such that things that seem implausible in the moment become plausible down the road. Um, I would say, the second thing I would say, though, is a bit of advice to progressive voices who are committed to these types of issues, um, is that um, I, I think back to Andrew Sullivan uh, and the work that he did to make the case for uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, you recall that he made it fundamentally on conservative grounds, right? That he that um, gay and lesbian couples ought to have access to the same benefits that the institution of marriage provided uh, heterosexual couples. This wasn't a call for, um, for a, a sort of cultural, for opening up a kind of cultural box that, that 
that was thereafter um, impossible to close, it was in, in effect a kind of conservative argument for expanding liberty. And I think that's ultimately why it was so successful and why same-sex marriage, of course, now is is become such a conventional idea in so many of our societies. I think where these movements risk um, undermining their argument is when they uh, when they rationalize the case for the ongoing expansion of these kind of social norms and expectations and the extension to, to liberalism in this almost un, unrelenting way. I think that risks turning off a lot of so-called normies who may be allies at some level, but then who start to to basically ask the question I said at the outset, which is, what's coming next? Yeah, yeah. To me, it's the it's it's the restlessness of liberalism that again has done so many remarkable things through human history to expand the scope of human freedom and autonomy. We have to acknowledge that. Any conservative has to acknowledge that because we work. We think human freedom is kind of important too in terms of human flourishing. But it's how that restlessness, you know, for lack of a better expression, at times really triggers conservatives. It really sets them off. And this issue of period products in men's washrooms, because I think people can, are, no one's debating, I think, well, I mean, there's some ridiculous arguments about that this is, you know, rewarding rich, you know, public servants with free period products where, you know, working Canadians have to buy their period products. Um, I guess there's a bit of an argument there, but I, I, I think what people are debating here is not period products in women's washrooms, it's period products in men's washrooms. And I just, I don't know, my advice to conservatives is just like, cool it. Like just, again, of a thousand and one issues that you can and could and should have legitimate and effective debates with liberalism, this probably is not one of them that's really gonna you know politically move the dial for you um and in some ways i think it plays i think liberalism loves how this triggers and you know tortures and you know amps up conservatives and kind of makes them look a little bit ridiculous i mean this is a ridiculous issue to be spending so much time thinking, writing, discussing, and debating. Let's be honest about it. Well, let me give voice to some of our our contributors, our, our readers and listeners who I think would argue, Rudyard, that you and I are too focused on economic issues, that we, as we've, I think, self-described, are, are too much in the camp of a kind of economic determinism, that at the end of the day, whatever our tax rates are or the size of government and as a share of GDP or whatever, that, that is the table stakes to these more fundamental questions about identity and uh, citizenship and, um, you know, as you called it, the, the good life. I, I think they would argue if we, if conservatives um, essentially cede the ground on these issues, maybe not this one in particular, but the set of issues that it, for, in a way it's a sort of proxy for, we are kind of missing the point in a way. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, fair enough. And I, I think there are, you know, legitimate, legitimate debates about, you know, change for change's sake, which is kind of the slogan of a lot of contemporary liberalism today. And I think conservatives rightly do want to conserve. They understand the value of continuity, of um, the extent to which, you know, we, we could or should 
I think, lead our best lives when we're rooted in some way, rooted in community, rooted in family, rooted for some people in faith, and that, you know, context matters, Lim limits matter. Being limited by things actually gives us identity. We don't achieve identity by always transgressing limits. It's we achieve a full identity by accepting limits and understanding how living with a limit, many people understandably have come to a new awareness and appreciation of disability and how disability as opposed to a limitation for, for many people actually becomes you know, a rich source of identity. Um, we, I think of your conversation with George F. Will about, you know, his, his uh, Down syndrome son. I mean, to me, that's a classic, beautiful, conservative sentiment and insight that in that, in that child's quote, air quotes, limitation, there's actually a wonderful identity and humanity and experience that makes George F. Will's life so much more richer in, in having had a son and having a son with, with Down syndrome. So I think that's where the that's where conservatives have legitimate and rich ground and history and tradition and philosophy to support themselves. I just think when you have MPs walking with their cameras into men's washrooms on Parliament Hill and ranting about period products, it's just you know it's without sophistication. It and I just think the 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 progressives there are just in glee at how they have amped up and tortured these um, these conservative MPs into kind of looking a little bit silly, frankly. I think that's my point. I just think it looks a little bit silly to march with your camera into a men's washroom on Parliament Hill and start ranting to your constituents about free period products. Yeah, it, maybe the, that connects the dots in some ways to the, the first part of the conversation, which is, the liberals backs are against the wall even if these new polls are right they're still down by 10 points and they're in search of a set of issues to try to wedge the the conservatives along the lines that we described earlier to try to to try to affect um make a vote for Pierre Polyev in the minds of a lot of ordinary Canadians uh, and essentially a vote for um the right flank of the Republican party in the United States and so um one thing i will say about that is that there is a tendency in the in the media and within liberal circles to sort of see the conservatives as the purveyors of of wedge politics and culture wars and so on and, and for liberals or progressives to be you know essentially um free of those temptations and, and i know i i think for a lot of my conservative friends it often feels like you know they've they're living in a, on a different planet, you know, that their sense is actually quite the opposite, that it is progressives and big L liberals that are, are the, frankly, the most adept at kind of using the cudgel of wedge politics and, and cultural war politics. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that putting these products in men's washrooms on Parliament Hill isn't motivated by a genuine kind of value-driven perspective. Um, but if... Uh, on top of that, they can extract a kind of wedge politics opportunity, then make no mistake, we're going to see uh, more of that. And I think you're, I mean, I think in the end, that's the best advice to conservatives. They need to exercise kind of prudence and discipline. They've, they have a core kind of economic proposition to Canadians that they continue to need to continue to advance. And they need to be, I, you know, oftentimes I ask conservatives, Rudyard, if they think anti-wokeism is good politics. And they always say, Maybe I've 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 yet to meet a lot of conservatives who say it's a slam dunk, and I think there are various reasons for that. But one of them is 
that when conservatives start to attack these issues, they they it starts to create doubt in people's minds, not just that they are against the kind of excesses of identity politics, but that they actually have aversion to the kind of basic um, experience and in, 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 in rights and so on of, of minorities. And so I, I think for all of those reasons, conservatives need to kind of exercise caution here and make sure that they are focused on the issues that are ultimately going to uh, resonate with the broadest share of the public. My final contribution to this is if in another different parallel universe, men menstruated, there would have been period products in washrooms since like ancient Greece. <laughs> we would we would not have been like talking or debating about these things. If, if men had uh, had periods, we would have, you know, giant days of like feasting and rest <laughs> during that, during those those moments of the month that we would have created. I mean, there is I, I think liberals in some ways are smart about this because I think they know that like women have lived with this and they live with this uh, throughout their lives it's a very normal thing for them and the idea i think for women of extending period products to transgendered people in men's washrooms is not only like issue 1002 of 1001 you got to add a whole bunch more zeros to end up to a place where you know uh where women would would give the appropriate weighting to this issue. So I think liberals are like using this to wedge the conservatives a bit with that female vote, that constituency that they they know the conservatives, that is a weakness. That's a point they're struggling with. Oh, I see Amal Adar Guzman, our uh, amazing 20 something producer is flagging Sean and me down as we have this discussion about women's period products and the politics of menstruation. What is uh, your take Amal? Look, my take is this. Conservatives and liberals, they want to play wedge politics all they want. I honestly think this is a good policy moving forward for the federal, for like federal buildings to have free period products for anyone who is menstruating. However, I don't think it's enough. There's a big issue right now with the cost of living. There is something called period poverty and period inflation. Back in 2018, the average cost of period products for a woman in their lifetime was $6,000. Now with the cost of living going up, it's becoming increasingly unaffordable. Back in June of 2023, there's been reports saying that 23% of Canadians who are menstruating cannot afford period products. They're saying they're super overpriced. And look, I've been menstruating for years and i have seen over time the rising of menstruating products going up and up and you know what there's many folks right now who are not able to afford especially those who are homeless outside in the street being someone who is homeless right now in the streets of toronto all around canada who is menstruating it is such an ordeal and honestly Yes, like liberals and conservatives can play wedge politics all they want about this, but it's actually not solving the issue, especially for those who are low income. Yeah, wow, those are great insights. I had not thought of that. And I think that's um, an important point to reflect on as we wrap up uh, the show. So Amal, thank you for that contribution. Thank you, Sean, for uh, playing along with me as we discuss this topic. I thought it was one that was worthy of some more serious and substantive focus and debate. I think we did that. If you agree, listeners, let us know. You can send us an email to editorial at thehub.ca. And also, while you're doing that, let us know about other topics or ideas you'd like us to um, 
reflect on on these roundtables. Are we creating the type of show that you appreciate and want to listen to every Friday? Is there something else we could be doing? We love your feedback. It's super important. And just a friendly reminder that, again, the gift of the hub is available to you right now to give to friends and family who love smart, sophisticated conversation and debate. You can do that right now on our website, www.thehub.ca. Click on the join button, scroll down to the bottom of the page for the gifting options. You get a charitable tax receipt. Your giftee gets a terrific hub hat and all kinds of great perks and benefits that come with hub subscription. So thanks everybody for listening. We will do this all again uh, on the weekend going into Christmas day. We'll catch up on Sean's shopping list. How much progress has a spear household made? Uh, on the gift front, I'm betting very little knowing Sean. So we'll have to take out the cattle prod next Friday and uh, get him out to his local uh, Canadian tire. Okay, everybody be well, be safe. We'll, we'll talk to you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was really appreciate your support and we also greatly appreciate the support of the linda from and howard sokolowski foundation and the maxine and ira gornowski gluskin foundation for making these podcasts possible the hub roundtable is produced and edited by amal otter guzman thank you for listening